This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm going to tell you about large-scale human modification of the planetary microbiome. We live in a microbial world. Everywhere we look on our planet and even in our bodies, we see complex microbial biofilms like this one. And in fact, there are 100 million times as many bacteria on Earth as there are stars in the universe. So you could say that, the micro, that microbiology is the ultimate in big data science. These numbers you might think of as astronomical numbers, we're now reclaiming as microbiological ones instead. Uh, new microbiome discoveries are changing how we see ourselves as human as well. So I'd like you to consider for a moment what you saw when you looked in the mirror this morning as you were getting up and getting ready to start your day. For myself, I saw an organism that's just 43% human, and not just because it was early and I hadn't had my coffee yet, but when we think of what makes up our bodies at the level of cells, to our 30 trillion human cells that carry the human genome, we have about 39 trillion microbial cells, and that's where that 43% number comes from. Now you might think, hey, wait a minute, it's the 21st century, rather than counting cells, shouldn't we think about our DNA? So let's think about that for a moment. To our 20,000 human genes, the size of our microbial gene catalog is somewhere between 2 and 20 million microbial genes. And so by that measure, we're at best 1% human. And what's most shocking is that the 99% of genes that we ignore when we focus on the so-called human genome are the genes that we can change throughout our lifetime and also throughout our evolutionary history and our adaptation to new societal, uh, new societal changes. So humans are modifying microbiomes throughout our bodies and our planet. And uh, we're running out of time to understand these changes and track their impact, as I'll go through in today's talk. Uh, when we study people living very traditional lifestyles, closer to what our ancestors would experience, like the Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, which we've worked on with Justin Sonnenberg and others, what we see is a strong pattern of seasonality in the human microbiome, even in the gut, in ways that are strongly attenuated in Western populations like we study in the American Gut Project. And uh, these populations sort out automatically using the techniques I'll talk about later uh, along an axis where uh, on the left-hand side, you see people living very traditional uh, lifestyles in the rainforest uh, or on the savanna. And on the right-hand side, you see people living in Western industrial, uh, industrialized cultures like our own. And this is coupled to a tremendous loss of diversity where entire phyla like the spirochetes that are common in non-human primates and uh, common in people living uh, traditional lifestyles are lost completely, and you see a much lower diversity community dominated by the Bacteroidaceae and the Veruca microbia and the more industrialized cultures. So it's almost as though we're taking the rich inner rainforest of our gut ecosystems and bulldozed it and turned it into a cityscape with much less diversity, where only the rats and the pigeons survive. And you might wonder what are the consequences of this, and I'm sure you're all familiar with Rachel Carson's work from the 1960s, uh, where she documented how attempts to get rid of single insect pest species with DDT and other chemicals had had far-reaching and adverse consequences for the diversity in the ecosystem. My good friend and colleague Marty Blazer, uh, now at Rutgers, wrote a wonderful book a few years ago, Missing Microbes, documenting how not just antibiotics, which made the cover, but all kinds of other things like increased use of C-section, uh, low-fiber diets, and all kinds of other aspects of modern civilization are decreasing our microbiome diversity in the gut. And uh, Marty loves to show the slide about why it matters. Uh, what we see is in the last part of the 20th century, where one disease after another caused by single organisms from measles to tuberculosis was brought under control. At the same time, we see an explosion of so-called chronic diseases ranging from asthma to multiple sclerosis. 
And uh, at the time that this, uh, this paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine 20 years ago, none of those so-called non-communicable diseases had been linked to the microbiome in any way, whereas today we know all four of them are linked to the microbiome in humans and can be caused or cured by modifying the microbiome in animal models, and so can dozens of others, including many types of cancer. So to get a handle on uh, the complexity of the, human, uh, of the human microbiome, NIH funded the Human Microbiome Project, uh, which ran from, uh, ran from 2008 uh, to uh, 2012, and uh, funded a huge number of labs across the country, including mine. And as part of this project, we looked at 250 healthy people at up to 18 locations on the body, collected four and a half trillion bases of DNA sequence data. Now, if you're thinking of an organism that lives in your gut, you're probably thinking of this one. And it's true, I could get E. coli uh, out of pretty much anyone, um, anyone watching this. But uh, the reason we know so much about it is not because it's a dominant player in the gut ecosystem. It makes up only one cell in a thousand to one cell out of a million uh, in your gut if you're a healthy adult. But rather, we know a lot about it because it's great growing on a petri dish or in liquid culture. Uh, but as Norm Pace likes to say, studying organisms this way is like going down to the zoo, looking at each animal in its individual cage, knowing nothing about its ecosystem, its interactions, or its behavior in its natural environment. So what we have to do is we instead have to tend to culture independent methods where we get all the DNA out of a sample and sequence it. But that leads to a big data challenge because each teaspoon of your stool has the amount of data in its DNA that it would take a ton of DVDs to store. Like I said, we collected four and a half trillion bases, uh, four and a half trillion A's, T's, G's, and C's in the Human Microbiome Project, 1,500 human genome equivalents, but then we had to analyze all this data. And here's a snippet, just a tiny snippet of the first file out of 17,000 in the HMP, and you can see you really have your work cut out for you trying to understand this data. And this is increasingly a problem, uh, not just from a research standpoint, but from a clinical standpoint, because I can tell you that it's your doctor's nightmare that you're going to show up in his or her office uh, with a big grin on your face and a list of a thousand species that they found in your gut by some kind of, uh, some, some kind of microbiome analysis. And I mean, what's your physician going to do? Refer you to colleagues in psychiatry for being crazy enough to think you could do something with that in the short time you have together? So a lot of our goal was to make it not crazy to integrate all of this data from around the human body and around the world uh, into profiles you can use. And to do this, we took a leaf quite literally from Darwin's book. And for those of you who haven't uh, reread his work on the origin of species recently, or perhaps read it at all, uh, the first edition is often considered a fairly dense read. So it's 502 pages, one figure. And so people who read it for the pictures are often disappointed. But I'd argue that you shouldn't be, because the one picture that Darwin thought was important enough to include was this one, the first rep representation of the phylogenetic tree as a way to organize life's diversity. So the next step was taken by Kathy Lozapone, one of my first graduate students, who I actually recruited to work on a totally different project, uh, but she persisted with her passion in uh, characterizing microbial diversity. As, as a result of not following my advice about what project was high impact and what to work on, it's safe to say she's done fine for herself. So she's now a, uh, she's now a tenured professor at the University of Colorado, where she's among the top three most highly cited people at that institution. And what she introduced uh, that's had such impact as part of her PhD thesis was this uh, distance metric called Unifrac, where we can exploit evolution at the whole community level. And so the intuition here is that if you have two identical communities like you have on the left, all of the tips of the tree representing modern uh, species that you find from their DNA, um, you find every, uh, every sequence in both the blue and the red community. Uh, so all the branches lead to both of them and they're shared, shown here in purple. And so none of them are unique. And we define that distance as zero. 
Whereas in contrast, if you have two completely unrelated communities like on the right, 100% of the branches are unique, leading only to the red or only to the blue, and we define that distance as one. And then any actual pair of communities will be in between that. And so what's so great about that is that we can combine this insight with Darwin's insight that there is one tree of life that connects everything from all environments, all organisms, and compare uh, as many communities as we like pairwise. So here showing red to yellow, red to blue, yellow to blue, where we compute the unifract distance between each pair of those, store them in a distance matrix, and then use various statistical techniques to analyze that distance matrix. So with this technique in hand, Kathy initially decided to look at everything, and she went to GenBank and downloaded tens of thousands of sequences covering the whole planet, everything from the poles to the equator, extremes of temperature, pH, just about every other biotic or abiotic factor you could imagine. And the question was, out of all this diversity, could we understand how life's environments were structured? And uh, amazingly, what we saw was this very clear split between saline and non-saline communities. You can see some blue points in there that are estuaries that truly are mixed. And if you're wondering about what about those factors like high temperature, they just don't make much difference as far as the bacteria are concerned. So for example, hot springs in Yellowstone and hydrothermal vents just look like the other non-saline and saline communities respectively. But in further work with Ruth Lay and Jeff Gordon, we were able to find some communities that were really extreme from the microbes perspective. When we add these communities, they introduce a new axis that explains twice as much of the inertia in the data set as that saline-non-saline split. You might ask, how far do you have to go to find these microbially extreme uh, communities? And the answer is that you don't have to go anywhere because they're right there within us. So the mammalian gut is especially weird from a microbiome perspective, uh, but so are other host-associated communities. And another way to look at the same data is as a network where we have a bipartite graph where nodes represent either kinds of microbes or samples that we were found in. And here we're coloring the edges by the sample type. And what you can see is that the, uh, the, the blue and the green for the human and the vertebrate gut respectively forms one large cluster in the graph. And then the free living environments in red form another large cluster. And then at the interface, like the skin and the mouth and various invertebrate communities are right at that border there. So we can see that microbiology in this very deep way forms a network connecting the human body to the planet. So how are we altering this network? Well, uh, when we look at the Human Microbiome Project data, and remember that these are all people living industrialized lifestyles, uh, we get this interpretable map from principal coordinates analysis of unifract distances. So remember, each dot on this map is a whole microbiome read out from its DNA. Two dots are close together if they have more similar evolutionary histories of their microbes. They're further apart if they have more dissimilar evolutionary histories. Now remember there's no disease on this map, but uh, when I color by the main factor, uh, you can see immediately that the different body sites, the mouth, the skin, the vaginal and the fecal communities emerge like different continents. And uh, if I highlight the sample from the first person in the HMP, you see their mouth and their gut is in a totally different location shown by those yellow dots. But it wasn't until we did the Earth Microbiome Project that we truly understood uh, what the scale meant because we could look at samples from all over the planet uh, and ask what two samples are just as different as, as the mouth and the gut of this one individual. And if you think of your uh, mouth as being sort of like a coral reef uh, filled with complex biomineralized structures that are uh, covered with biofilms that maybe your dentist bugs you about, the amazing fact is your mouth is as far from your gut and its microbiome ecology as the water in that reef is from the dirt in this prairie. And we never expected that, right? That a few feet along a human body could make as much of a difference as thousands of miles across the Earth's surface. So uh, what is the Earth Microbiome Project, you might be wondering? Uh, well, it's a global collaborative effort led by uh, Jack Gilbert, uh, uh, Janet Jansen, and myself uh, to characterize microbial life across the planet. 
And uh, in the initial paper in 2017 in Nature, we looked at the first 27,000 samples, so they were up to hundreds of thousands now, uh, contributed by hundreds of scientists spanning uh, true extremes of just about every factor you could imagine. But unlike Kathy's earlier study, these are all done with a consistent protocol rather than being done in different studies with different protocols. And uh, this just gives you an idea of the distribution geographically, but if you look at the left-hand side, we let the microbes themselves tell us what was important and what was unimportant from their perspective to create a new ontology of environments uh, for pristine samples that we can now compare degraded samples to. Uh, we found that soil sediments and plant roots were the most diverse microbial ecosystems on planet Earth, not surprising given what was known from past studies. Uh, but we also found this fascinating principle of microbial osmosis where low-complexity communities form a hierarchy uh, in a defined consistent subset of species from higher diversity communities. And we also found that if you do a crude high-level analysis at the genus level, the genera are universally distributed around the world, like in the top panel, but if you get down to the strain level, you find strains being selected for in unique environments, and that's where we have to look for primarily at where the microbial biodiversity is being preserved. So we can use this sort of data set combined with a technique called niche modeling, uh, which we did with Josh Ladau and uh, then Gladstone and Noah Ferrer at the University of Colorado to reconstruct even extinct ecosystems from relics. And so the tall grass prairie that used to cover most of North America is now largely extinct with only a few relics left between railroad ties and in graveyards. And uh, what, what we could do is we could use niche modeling and um, uh, reconstructions of past ecosystems to look from these relic communities at what the ecosystem would have looked like in terms of taxonomic diversity and functional gene diversity had people not completely restructured uh, all of these ecosystems with agriculture. And uh, Viroco microbia, which are among the dominant taxa uh, in, uh, in, in this um, tall grass ecosystem, are really hard to grow in the lab because they love carbon, but they don't like nitrogen. And so agriculture has basically wiped out this microbial ecosystem, but there's relics of it that we can restore from, and we can understand what it looked like before human intervention. Um, that's just one way that humans are messing up microbial ecosystems, and uh, other, other ways we're doing it include uh, agri agricultural practices like fertilizers, uh, agricultural emissions, uh, waste treatment, um, and their microbes are also involved in a lot of other processes that modify climate, such as uh, methane emissions from ruminants and from rice paddies. And uh, in fact, uh, microbes are so involved in different ecosystem processes that uh, a group of microbiologists um, summarized all of the information in this paper with a rather sobering title, Scientists Warning to Humanity, Microorganisms and Climate Change. And perhaps what's most sobering is that we know so little about these ecosystems. We know they're having a huge impact on, on climate and that we're modifying them, but we don't know that much about what we're doing specifically or what the consequences are. And that's true not just of terrestrial, but also marine ecosystems. So this is from work we did with Jack Gilbert. Uh, he's now at uh, UCSD as well on the Western English Channel, which is the waterway that separates the UK from Europe. And, um, and we did an initial analysis of one site over six years, looking at 72 samples, which at the time was a massive project, but it's tiny compared to the scale of what we can do now. And um, the goal was to look at seasonal microbial community structure and uh, then relate that to environmental variables. And so, um, and so what, was, what was cool about this is uh, we saw this extremely strong seasonal pattern um, that we could see with peaks and troughs. And then the question was, if you just look at one sample, how does the diversity in one sample correlate with the rest of the time series? And what we were able to show was that more abundant taxa were much more likely to persist through time. This is just showing the phylogenetic distribution from that paper. 
however, what was really interesting was these conditionally rare taxa that are rare most of the time, but occasionally become really common. And uh, although we derived this concept initially uh, with, with Ashley Shade and marine ecosystems, it turns out that it's a relatively rare uh, set of taxa in marine ecosystems compared to human-associated uh, uh, ecosystems and soils and streams, where these conditionally rare taxa are in fact much more important. And so this is really critical because it suggests that there are many rare taxa that remain viable but not culturable, uh, a concept introduced by Rita Colwell. And what was fascinating is that when we took one sample and went really deep into it, uh, what we found is that we found um, essentially 100% of all of the taxa throughout the, the whole time series in just one sample from just one month, uh, even though you have this profound pattern of environmental change. And what's more, uh, when we compared that data set to data sets around the world, what we found is that most of the microbes uh, from all over all of the marine, uh, marine systems, from rocky reefs uh, all the way to sediments in the abyssal zone, would be found in that seawater sample if you sequence deeply enough. And so this is really exciting from this perspective of being able to sequence deeply enough to saturate from a small number of samples what, do the, uh, what does the microbial diversity look like uh, so that you can then match it up to different ecosystems around the world. It also suggests that you can find somewhere uh, microbes that are rare in your sample but common in some other sample to do techniques like genome reconstruction that require more of the biospecimen. Uh, we're also very interested in linking uh, these two aspects, uh, the environment and human health, uh, through their microbiome ecologies. And uh, in this respect, we're doing a lot of work with Kim Prather, who runs CASE, the Large Atmospheric Chemistry Center here at UC San Diego, and who runs the world's largest wave research facility uh, in terms of being able to make breaking waves that create aerosols that exactly match the size particle distribution that you get uh, in, in the ocean. And um, the reason why this is important is atmospheric aerosols transport a lot of stuff, including, uh, including viruses and bacteria. And so this is satellite imagery from NASA uh, showing how they, uh, how they flow from one continent to another over time. And so Kim was running this uh, project called CalWater, uh, looking at how aerosols affect precipitation in California. And uh, what she found was a key role for atmospheric rivers that had a distinct microbial signature. And building on work that we'd done a few years prior with Noah Fira and Bob Bowers and at the University of Colorado at Boulder, um, what, uh, what Kim found was that microbes in the dust from as far away as Africa nucleated ice crystals over the Sierra Nevada range and um, altered the amount, uh, the amount of precipitation. And so in other words, microbes coming from Africa can, ex can explain whether or not we have a drought here in California, just underscoring the global connection and the impact on climate of these microbes. And, um, and, and climate isn't all they affect, so, um, so Kim and I are also working with Jane Burns, who runs the Kawasaki Disease Research Center here at UC San Diego. And Kawasaki disease is the most common cause of acquired heart disease in children. And uh, Jane says that she can tell when she needs to come into the clinic by reading the weather report, because as you can see in the graphs, in Japan and in San Diego and in Hawaii, the incidence of Kawasaki disease in red is tightly correlated with the amount of wind from a particular direction, shown here in blue. And so what we're trying to figure out at the moment is can we match microbes in clouds and in dust with those in an afflicted child's fingertips and airways. 
But this leads us to this question about what are the sources of microbes in clouds, and it's really easy to think about terrestrial dust because it's so easy to see, especially when it's the result of human activity. Uh, but the oceans cover a lot more of the planet uh, than, um, than sources of terrestrial dust do, and we know very little about how, uh, how microbes from seawater get into the clouds, as well as knowing much less about how human impacts are modifying seawater, especially at that critical ocean-atmosphere interface. And, um, and so, uh, so, so again with Kim, uh, we're, we're studying uh, how microbes launch themselves differentially into the sky, uh, depending on whether they're able to get from the bulk liquid phase into aerosol droplets, and then looking at how uh, this might be impacting everything from COVID-19 transmission from the Tijuana estuary uh, to ice nucleating bacteria that modify climates. And being able to take these kinds of things all the way from large-scale ecosystems into the lab is really important. But humans are also creating completely new kinds of environment. And so one really important one is the plastosphere, where the plastics, including microplastics, that we release into the environment, recruit and enrich for a very low diversity but very systematic community wherever it is in the world. And so understanding how we're creating these completely new kinds of environment that microbes have never seen before and what the consequences are for microbial diversity is really important, as well as understanding uh, why we see such low diversity communities in human impacted lakes and soils and rivers and sediments and other environments around the world, as well as when you take any of these uh, microbial ecosystems and bring them into the lab, why is it that the diversity is reduced so much? So uh, to sum up, um, uh, I was asked to talk about how humanity is changing the world's microbiomes. Uh, we're depleting diversity, uh, both in our own bodies and in many places in the environment. But the microbes that are rare everywhere, um, uh, almost everywhere, are common somewhere. So there's still hope. It's still likely not too late to save Earth's endangered microbes and make a difference. And this reminds me of a talk I saw from Jeremy Jackson, who was in at, um, who was in at SIO when I was in grad school, where uh, he contrasted terrestrial ecosystems, where from the Pleistocene, there just aren't any mammoths left anywhere on Earth. But then if you look at marine ecosystems, there are still manatees, there are still sea turtles and so forth. Uh, they're just rare in most places, but you could reintroduce them. And so microbes are like that, in that uh, we think that most of the microbes are rare somewhere, but they still exist and we can find them and reintroduce them to restore natural ecosystems. And to this end, uh, Jack and I, together with Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello and Marty Blazer, uh, called for an effort to uh, create a microbial seed bank, where the idea is that if we can preserve this microbial diversity in Svalbard or some other similarly resistant site, uh, we'd, be able to, we'd be able to store the seeds of these threatened microbiomes uh, from different kinds of micro, microbiome diversity around the planet, and then be able to restore that microbial diversity when we have the techniques to grow all those kinds of microbes, because most of them we don't know how to grow in the lab yet, uh, and, uh, and, and restore all of these different kinds of ecosystems, both in our environment and uh, with a view to combating all those chronic diseases in which we now microbes are involved. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank literally over a thousand collaborators, only a few of whom I was able to uh, name during this talk, uh, who've contributed to this research, uh, the many amazing people in my lab over the years, uh, our many different sources of funding who support all this stuff, and the tens of thousands of members of the public and the hundreds of scientists who've contributed to the American Gut Project and the Earth Microbiome Project by sending in their samples. And with that, uh, thanks again for the opportunity to speak at this wonderful symposium, and I'm really looking forward to the rest of it. Thank you. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you today from the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and acknowledge their elders past and present. I'd also like to extend my respect to the traditional custodians of all of the lands that the audience is joining us from today. 
So my topic today is accumulating space debris and the risk of Kessler syndrome. I'd like to start just by putting the Earth into the context of the entire solar system. And in this image here, you can see the Earth on the far left corner, the third planet from the sun. Uh, the red label of Voyager 1 is the approximate location of the Voyager 1 spacecraft, now in interstellar space, which is the furthest human object away from the Earth. And then you can see a slice through the Oort cloud, which is a, a huge sphere of icy and rocky bodies that surrounds the entire solar system. So this is our geographic context, if you like. Now let's focus in on the Earth itself. This is an image of space junk surrounding Earth in which you can see a close cloud in low Earth orbit of little white dots, each one representing a, a satellite or a piece of space junk, and a broad ring which represents the geostationary orbit where most of our telecommunications satellites are uh, up until the launch of the mega constellations. So it's estimated that in this assemblage of space junk, there are approximately 34,000 uh, pieces of debris that are larger than 10 centimetres. And below 10 centimetres, millions and millions and millions of little bits of junk going right down to the, the microparticulate or the nanoparticle size. In weight, the total of this debris surrounding Earth is equivalent to 10 million cane toads. Cane toads are a pest that was introduced into Australia in the 1930s uh, to control other pests on sugarcane crops, but quickly became uh, a problem in its own right. And it's currently destroying wildlife and spreading itself throughout different Australian states. So it seems like a good metaphor to me for the problem of space junk, which is proliferating and increasing every year uh, and putting human operations in space at risk. So we talk about space junk uh, as if it's all one kind of thing. But in actual fact, uh, what we call space junk is made up of a number of specific classes of objects. And of these, the perhaps the most recognisable are defunct satellites, uh, satellites that were once used for Earth observation or telecommunications that have ceased to work uh, or have been damaged in some way. Then we have upper rocket stages. These delivered these satellites into Earth orbit and have been abandoned there. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these um, very unstable at risk of explosion. There's also mission-related debris. These are all of the things that uh, get left in Earth orbit in the process of deploying a spacecraft and uh, the fairings that enclose the spacecraft or satellite before its release are among those mission-related debris. And then, of course, we have fragments that come from explosions or collisions or damage to spacecraft. And it's not randomly distributed, as we saw in our first picture. There are a number of high-density orbits. Low Earth orbit is the most dense. We have a more or less equatorial circular orbit. Uh, there's also polar orbit in this region. About 35,000 kilometres away from Earth, we have the all-important geostationary or geosynchronous orbit, where the telecommunications satellites and also China's uh, navigation constellation are located. There's a number of others as well. The Molniya orbit was used by the former Soviet Union because its highly elliptical shape enables satellites to reach high latitudes. There's also the graveyard orbit. So about 500 kilometres beyond geostationary, old satellites often get boosted up out of the way. So this is the physical structure of 
the debris that surrounds the earth. And the problem with it is that each one of these objects on average travels at eight kilometers a second. So if you collide with something traveling at that speed, there are going to be consequences for this. If two large objects, and by that I mean over 10 centimetres, it doesn't seem that large, but in space terms it is, if they collide, then each of those objects is likely to catastrophically break up, producing hundreds or thousands of new pieces of debris. For the smaller size, which is um, between 10 centimetres and one centimetre, collision with one of these can possibly cause the satellite uh, to stop working or cause damage to electronic components, and occasionally there might be an explosion. And the tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces are just constantly bombarding every object in space. So there's an accumulation of material degradation over time. So this is the problem with space junk. It creates more space junk, and each dead object in space is a risk for those functioning satellites that we re rely on so much in the modern world. Back in 1978, two space scientists, Donald Kessler and Burton Corpolet, wrote a very famous paper in which they discussed the possibility that space junk could form actual rings around the Earth. This became known as Kessler syndrome. And the popular conception is that enough space junk is created that it actually encircles Earth and means it would be impossible to leave without being struck by these incredibly fast-moving bits of junk. They didn't actually predict this in their paper. They said certain regions of Earth orbit might become unusable. But in either scenario, this is considered highly undesirable. This is something that could seriously hamper uh, human activities in space. And it's a problem that we're not anywhere near close to solving at the moment. We keep putting more stuff up there and more debris keeps being created. So this is widely acknowledged to be a big problem. But what I want to do today is actually look at space junk from a few different perspectives. So as well as uh, a problem for future space industry, we can look on all of this stuff as a new kind of archaeological record. And what I'm showing you here is a little snapshot of the year 1961. So that's just four years after the launch of Sputnik 1, the first satellite ever to reach Earth orbit. There were 30 objects launched into space this year and nine of these survive and they include some very interesting spacecraft. One of my personal favourites is TRAC, which you see in the upper range of pictures. This spacecraft had the first poem ever in space inscribed on one of its internal instrument panels. It was also put out of commission by the Starfish Prime High Altitude Nuclear Test, so it forms part of that history of nuclear proliferation and control on Earth. It has a story to tell uh, about how we get to where we are right now. The other one that I find particularly interesting is the Westford uh, spacecraft that you see in the lower corner. This was designed to release tiny electric dipole antennas that would surround the Earth in another kind of cloud to bounce radio waves off. This would have been an efficient method of communication on Earth but had the effect if radio waves were confined to Earth bouncing around this ring, it meant radio waves couldn't reach us from the rest of the universe. So radio astronomy was effectively dead. There was a massive scientific campaign and they were successful in getting the Westford project stopped. So this represents a trajectory of technology that did not go anywhere. 
So this space junk, as well as being dangerous, has cultural values of all different kinds, as we can see from this. Following on from that, we can also look at debris in Earth orbit as a cultural landscape. In the operational guidelines to the World Heritage Convention, a cultural landscape is defined as the combined works of nature and humans. And this is effectively what we've created in Earth orbit now. We have uh, an environment which is a combination of naturally occurring micrometeoroids, uh, radiation, electromagnetic um, formations, plasma clouds, all kinds of things that we call space weather with the introduced artificial bodies that are the result of human endeavours in space. So this effectively means it's a, a cultural landscape, but it's also one that we can't perceive. So a hyper-object, a concept that originates with the uh, ecological philosopher Timothy Morton, is something that is massively distributed in space and time. So no one image or one measurement will tell you what this is. You only perceive it by its effects. And all of this stuff in Earth orbit, I think, fulfills the criterion for being a hyper-object. We, we see its effects. We can perceive little tiny bits of it if we focus our Earth-based instruments or our space telescopes on it. But the stuff is so widely spaced, really, that we can't ever get, we have to rely on artists' impressions and simulations to get any sense of what's actually happening out there. So we can think of this as a hyper-object and we can also think of it as an environment. So there's a long tradition of regarding space as a vacuum. Uh, there's nothing alive there that we haven't put there ourselves. We're so used to thinking of environments on Earth as being made up of ecologies, of, of connected webs of, of living things from microbes and bacteria all the way up to humans. So space hasn't really been thought of in this way before. And this leads to a situation where environmental management protocols such as we use on Earth are not thought to be applicable to space and that we have no moral obligation to protect the space environment. So I think looking at space junk as part of an environment gives us a different perspective on how we might manage whatever environmental or cultural values we assess it to have. Everything in Earth orbit has, is created by a process uh, which is a very Anthropocene process. It's about the redistribution of elements on Earth. And we see this already in the concern for uh, carbon footprints, um, the changing balance and location of uh, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen and carbon in the Earth's atmosphere. And we're extending that now beyond the atmosphere. So if you rearrange the periodic table, not by atomic number, but by abundance in the Earth, you get what you see in the picture uh, down the bottom. It turns out that the most abundant elements are hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen. And you'll also see aluminium is up there. So approximately one third of the Earth's crust is aluminium. Aluminium is also one of the most commonly used spacecraft materials, but it doesn't occur naturally in the open interplanetary space environment. So humans have been sending aluminium into space uh, and beyond to the other planets and moons as well. So we're kind of altering the, the natural distribution of these elements and minerals 
by putting them out into space. And we see this in the stuff that's in Earth orbit, but we're also starting to engage in more uh, serious uh, activities of redistributing the elements of the solar system. Soon there are going to be people on the moon extracting its resources. So off-Earth mining is a huge topic in the space community at the moment. So in the, in the way we've started dismantling the Earth in order to get into space, we're soon going to be starting the process of dismantling other moons and planets. And if we take this to its most logical and perhaps bizarre uh, end of the trajectory, what you get is uh, an object called the Matryoshka brain, which was uh, conceived by Robert Bradbury about 20 years ago. The Matryoshka brain is a huge supercomputing object which is manufactured or created by dismantling all of the planets and moons in a solar system, which are then used to create shells of computronium, uh, layers of computing elements, so that the entire solar system becomes a massive computer uh, which, whose thought processes work so slowly that humans effectively can't communicate with it. So this is science fiction of the far future. But you could say we're starting to see the beginnings of such a process right now as we take bits of Earth and redistribute them in space and as we're thinking about doing exactly the same thing to the moon. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence, also known as SETI, is dedicated to looking for evidence of other intelligent or sentient um, inhabitants of the universe. And exactly one of the things that they're looking for are techno-structures or technological objects that can reveal the presence of this kind of thought, except uh, with our limited capacity to view things from Earth, we need to look at them at, as you know, giant engineering projects in space. So there are instruments on Earth all of the time looking at exoplanets, wondering if they might see such a signature. And, of course, in Space Junk, we have created this signature for our own planet. We're creating potential rings around Earth, just like we see around the planets from the middle to the end of the solar system. Most of them actually do have ring structures. The inner planets don't, but, but we're kind of making our own. So with Space Junk, we're creating exactly the kind of technological signature that SETI scientists are looking for in other planets. Whether this does end up making us more visible to anyone looking from the outside is a whole other question. But this is another way we can look at the accumulation of debris in Earth orbit. So what happens if we do reach the tipping point and end up with Kessler syndrome? So there's no broad agreement about when this might happen or if it might happen at all. Some people say with another anti-satellite missile test, as we saw from Russia last year, that could be the tipping point. Uh, we would get this endless cascade of collisions and we would never reduce the amount of space junk in Earth orbit. Other people say we're never going to get to that point and there's so many people working on the problem of solving space debris. But let's just say the tipping point is reached and it's not so easy for us to leave Earth anymore. What is this going to mean? A lot of discussion around space activity is based on this idea that it's in our genes, that uh, humans as a species are uh, evolutionarily adapted to exploring and this is a natural outcome of something that began deep in the Paleolithic era. 
So conceptually, if this possibility is closed off, uh, some people argue that this would be some kind of blow to the human spirit that it would be difficult to recover from. I think it's worth mentioning here that when we talk about humanity in space, um, it's not everybody who gets to go to space. It's not everybody that has created the space junk problem. The, the bulk of space junk in Earth orbit comes from uh, Russia, former Soviet Union, the US uh, and China. So when we talk about humanity at this scale, we have to ask ourselves exactly who are these humans and what are the different impacts on them? So maybe making statements about the future of hum humanity's evolution is uh, a bit much at this point. One thing would be certain, if it were difficult to leave the Earth, this would be a perhaps dramatic end to capitalist uh, expectations about how space will be used and exploited. And this is the dominant paradigm of looking at space at the moment uh, in the international space community. So the idea that space is a resource for humans to use rather than any of the other ways of looking at it that I've outlined here is extremely commonly accepted and is becoming more acceptable. And this is the way future space industry is going to be going. So this, this one view, which arises from a particular historic uh, point in time and space, is now becoming uh, the globally accepted way of looking at our engagement with space. So if Kessler syndrome stops us from getting off the planet, that means space is safe from this kind of exploitation. So what will that mean? As an archaeologist, uh, it strikes me also that Kessler syndrome could cause what is um, a big uh, area of study uh, across the archaeological record uh, in many continents, and that is the collapse of civilization. And again, we have to say, well, what does civilization mean in this context? What does it mean for it to collapse? What will that look like in the archaeological record? And I suppose from the perspective of space, what that will look like is a ring of debris around the earth that decays over time, breaks into smaller fragments in which the outside observer would, would see that there were no new objects being placed and that it was gradually uh, coalescing uh, into one big structure that perhaps from a distance might be indistinguishable from a natural planetary ring. I will leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I'm Asher Rossinger from Penn State University, and today I'm going to discuss one of humanity's most pressing problems, that is anthropogenic global water insecurity. Throughout human evolution, water needs have played an important selective pressure affecting survival. We've developed several genetic adaptations to water scarcity, including changes to our body proportions to more efficiently use water. Yet these biological adaptations are costly in the last resort. Humans first use behavioral adaptations to meet their immediate water needs, which have increased our ability to survive in extreme environments. Yet globally, 2.1 billion people lack access to safely managed drinking water within 30 minutes of their house. Water insecurity can manifest in three primary ways. First, water scarcity or living in places without enough water and lack infrastructure to deliver that water. Second, living in places with too much dirty water where reliance on surface water is common. And finally, 
places dealing with water contamination or aging and failing infrastructure. Water insecurity is defined as the inability to access and benefit from sufficient, reliable, and acceptable water for well-being and a healthy life. The majority of research has assessed how water insecurity is associated with psychosocial stress and mental well-being, discussed as suffering for water and suffering from water, while newer research indicates that it's also associated with physical health. We care about water insecurity because this has critical implications for health and human biology throughout the life course and how these problems can compound over one's life. During infancy, water insecurity can increase risk of dehydration, diarrhea, and stunting. In childhood, there's evidence it affects dehydration, altered gut microbiome, and cognitive performance. During pregnancy and lactation, water restriction may lead to higher stress and affect fetal homeostatic thirst set points, as well as lead to smaller fetal body size, which may point to intergenerational effects of water insecurity. And in adulthood and late adulthood, proxies of water insecurity are associated with kidney function, blood pressure, and food insecurity, which are some of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality worldwide. How individuals and households cope with water insecurity is critical to understand. Water is one of humanity's greatest limiting factors. Therefore, humans in water insecure environments must use behavioral adaptations to meet their water needs. For example, in water-scarce environments, people often rely on multiple water sources and may spend hours fetching water. Yet the very interventions, often from external actors, aimed at addressing water insecurity may have unintentional consequences. Today, I'm going to focus on three case studies of these different types of water problems and how human or anthropogenic changes can unintentionally further disrupt water insecurity and health. First, I want to turn to northern Kenya to discuss an emerging water insecurity issue around the globe, which is increasing salinity content of groundwater. The Dasanich are a pastoralist population that live near the banks of the saline Lake Turkana and are highly marginalized. One of the biggest concerns for Dasanich that they expressed to me was that the salinity of their water was increasing and that the water salinity can make them and their livestock sick. In fact, one of their wells in a dry riverbed is named El Chuchumbi, which literally means the salty riverbed. So they have a history of knowing it's salty. And we found that 93% of households are water insecure and that water salinity is associated with that. Development projects in the area have worked to increase water access for Dasanich, particularly in the main town through the construction of deep wells, standpipes, and pumps. But often, these tap into deeper groundwater, which are more saline. Or they're built in vulnerable regions, like dry riverbeds, and during the rainy season, they can flood and break within a matter of months. We've been tracking the water salinity in this region, along with blood pressure and kidney function of Dasanich, to understand how the salinity of water sources are changing and are associated with their blood pressure and kidney function. The guidelines for dietary salt intake have been established by the World Health Organization, suggesting that humans shouldn't consume more than five grams per day. But there are no similar guidelines released for safe salinity levels in drinking water. 
except that sodium levels above 200 milligrams per liter are unacceptable to taste, while water with greater than 500 milligrams per liter is no longer considered fresh water. Our water quality results indicate that nearly all of the water sources for docinage are above 200 milligrams per liter at which you can taste the salinity. And we found that the hand dug wells range from 200 to 500 milligrams per liter. However, the standpipes in the region had levels as high as 2000 milligrams per liter, which people reported drinking if there were no other options present. They also told us that they use this water for cooking. So they're ingesting it in that way. When we examined how water salinity is associated with high blood pressure or hypertension, we found that each additional 100 milligrams per liter of salt concentration in their drinking water was associated with 45% higher odds of hypertension. We also found that the overall probability of hypertension was quite high in this population when you take into account their low BMIs and active lifestyles. Similarly, we examined the odds of hyperdilute urine, which is an indicator of kidney dysfunction. We found that each 100 milligrams per liter of salt in water was associated with 33% higher odds of dilute urine, which was significant in most models, but we need additional biomarkers to confirm this finding. The key takeaways from this first case study are that it's critical to take stock of water quality and the local hydrology prior to interventions as the easier water to access in this region, like the tap water, was highly saline. What happens when you increase access to saline water is that it can have unintended consequences by increasing blood pressure and having implications for kidney function. Shifting to a second case study of a situation of too much dirty water, I want to now focus on lowland Bolivia and the Chimani a group of about 17,000 forager horticulturalists who I've been working with since 2009 and who traditionally have used surface water sources to meet their water needs. The Amazon is a water-rich environment, but frequent flooding, intermittent droughts, fires, and mining all jeopardize water security and can reduce trust in water sources. Development and engineering projects have worked to reduce reliance on surface waters. Yet, 30 to 60% of these new water sources are inoperable at a given time, causing frustration and continued reliance on surface waters, leading to water insecurity. The Joint Monitoring Program's Drinking Water Services Ladder classifies water sources along a gradient to indicate their relative safety and access. At the bottom is surface water, or water directly from rivers, ponds, and streams. And all the pictures I'm showing are from Chimani water sources. Next on the drinking water ladder is unimproved water sources, which is water from unprotected wells or springs. And next we have what we classify improved water sources, which have the potential to deliver safe water like taps and protected wells. And the further classification then depends on their distance from a person's home and their availability. I wanted to understand what happens to chronic stress when new water sources are introduced. So we tested how differences in water source access as defined by the drinking water ladder relate to an objective biomarker of chronic stress. We hypothesized that chronic stress would decrease as you moved up the drinking water ladder. 
We classified households' access to water sources, and we collected hair samples, which we analyzed for hair cortisol concentration as a biomarker of chronic stress. In contrast with our hypothesis of an inverse relationship, the drinking water services ladder showed a distinct pattern with hair cortisol concentration. Compared to surface water, men using unimproved services had 55% higher hair cortisol concentration, while improved water services were not different from surface water. And women showed the exact same distinct pattern where women using unimproved services had 46% higher hair cortisol concentration. So why are unimproved sources associated with higher stress than surface water, which is ranked as lower and less clean water source on the drinking water ladder? Well, unimproved sources for Chimani, like open wells, often lead to frustration because they can get contaminated and need cleaning. Here, a man is shown inside a well, getting black gunk out of the well, and he told me that this process of cleaning the well took three full days. Yet community members have been told repeatedly by NGOs that wells are a cleaner source of water than river water. And this may generate confusion that could exacerbate stress. Women often complain that kids in the villages would throw trash and batteries into the open wells and that debris would fall into them. Others said that when they would reach a well, they'd be unable to extract water because the water drying bucket was missing, further leading to stress. So the key takeaways from the second case study is that half measures to address water insecurity can have unintended consequences, like increasing frustration and stress. And second, that equity is critical in development projects and provision of clean water. Households living farther away from the construction of improved water sources may experience increased stress and perceptions of disadvantage, especially if they no longer believe the river is clean. Finally, turning to the last case study in the United States, the issue of whether people can trust their water is increasingly important, where access to water that meets water quality standards often falls along race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic boundaries. High visibility events like boil water advisories and shocks like national attention to the Flint, Michigan water crisis may create long-lasting distrust of tap water. So I've been examining how did the Flint water crisis affect tap water avoidance in the U.S., and what are the unintended consequences of this event? When we examine nationally representative trends in tap water avoidance among U.S. children and adults from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data, we see two things. First, we see huge disparities in who avoids tap water, with Hispanic and black children and adults not drinking tap water more than white individuals over time, often because of structural inequalities, systemic racism, and growing distrust. And second, after the Flint water crisis in 2013-14, there was a large uptick in tap water avoidance following this event. Overall, this translates into 20% or 61 million people in the U.S. who don't drink their tap water. Why this matters is that when people don't trust their water, they're more likely to avoid it. And concurrently, we see large shifts to exclusive reliance on bottled water in the U.S. since the Flint water crisis. This has substantial environmental costs through single-use plastics, as well as being orders of magnitude more expensive, leading to higher socioeconomic stress. Further, 
We found that those who don't drink plain water consume twice as many calories from sugary drinks as water drinkers. This is bad because sugary drink consumption is associated with weight gain, diabetes, obesity, and dental cavities. Taking all three of these case studies into account, it's important to remember that as we modify our environment, we change our water supplies, and this results in changes to our exposures. When individuals respond to water insecurity, it's critical to be mindful to provide solutions that understand local hydrology, cultural customs, and address distrust. Otherwise, the very solutions we're trying to implement may have unintentional consequences, like shifting consumption toward less healthy options, more saline water, or even sugary beverages. All of these factors can make water problems worse in the long term. I'd like to thank my collaborators and co-authors on the studies I discussed, the funding agencies, the participants, and the great research teams, and the organizers. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.